Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGurk. Our guest today is Bill McDermott, the CEO of ServiceNow. Now, Alan, I first met Bill couple of years ago on stage in person, I know, at the Fortune Global Forum in Toronto, back when he was the CEO of SAP. I will tell you this because I know you already know it. That man knows how to wow a crowd and make an entrance. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely true. I'll tell you, I first met him 10 years ago at Radio City Music Hall uh, at the World Business Forum where he was getting ready to speak. I was there interviewing Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric. And and what I like about this episode today, Ellen, is the juxtaposition of the leadership style that drove Jack Welch to be the most iconic leader of the business world 20 years ago and the very different leadership style that Bill McDermott represents. It is fascinating. And I should probably mention that ServiceNow is not really a household name, but it certainly touches a lot of workplaces and it touches a lot of Fortune's really good lists. They're on the best workplaces lists for tech, Bay Area, diversity, parents, all of that stuff. But it does create software for big companies to better manage projects, workflow, customer service, some HR functions. So it's both a very technical product, but also a human one. Their aim is to make businesses run better. And I think that's Bill's aim, too. The other thing I'd add to that, Ellen, is that his predecessor as the CEO of ServiceNow was another person who I'm dying to get on this show, John Donahoe, who left there to become CEO of Nike and is one of the most conscious, thoughtful, purpose-driven leaders that I know. So we'll put him on the list for a future episode. I like how you just put that out into the airwaves, too. So I can feel I can <laughs> feel him invitation. reaching for the phone right now. <laughs> Come on, John. Come on. So Bill has only been at ServiceNow since November. Talk about a challenging first few months on the job. Agreed, Alan. So let's hear how he's facing all these challenges. Bill, welcome to Leadership Next. Thank you very much, Alan. Good to be with you. Now, I know we have a lot to talk about, but I did want to start with your story because I think that's where a lot of your resilience and leadership philosophy starts. Now, listeners can't see that I'm holding up your amazing book, Winner's Dream, Strong Recommend. I have the copy you signed for me at the Fortune Global Forum two years ago. But then and now, I was struck by how much your personal story means to people. The Queens, Long Island, working class kid whose early life was marked by loss, fire, family, personal hunger, and a deli who made it to the corner office. Why do you think that is? Well, I tell you, I dedicated the book to my mom, Kathy McDermott, because of her amazing optimism. And I said, uh, everything I was, am, or ever will be, I owe it all to you. I believe that I was extremely lucky to have great parents and a loving home. And I think that's really the essence of my story. I always wanted to work hard. I always wanted to be somebody. And I think getting jobs early on in life and realizing that work was kind of my superpower. I got confidence from work and the benefit of making a a dollar or two uh, delivering papers or working part-time jobs took me to the corner store where I, I got my delicatessen business. And it was amazing. I really matured. I grew and I got confidence from work itself. And I realized that you know, work itself was probably the most important thing for me personally. So um, I'm a lucky guy. We should probably talk about your transition from SAP to ServiceNow. Can you tell us why you left? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, 
when I started in my professional career at Xerox, I was at Xerox 17 years. And uh, I loved Xerox and I worked my way up the ladder at Xerox. And I look at SAP, I was at SAP 17 years. So I think about every 17 years, Ellen, I get a little bit of an itch to change. <laughs> um, but I had been with SAP, great company. I was proud to have been the CEO at SAP, the only American one for 10 years. We took the company from a 39 billion market cap to 170 billion and transformed the business model to the cloud. And there was so much to be proud of. But I was also in a situation where I had to face another renewal uh, for five more years. And frankly, uh, thinking about 10 years as CEO of SAP, I think 10 years is about the right amount of time to be CEO. And I felt strongly that it was in my interest as well as SAP's to, you know, bring on a new generation in SAP and then give me a new experience, a new frontier to conquer. And I was extremely fortunate to run into ServiceNow. And it's a company that inspires me every day. Um, so it was just great timing and a great opportunity. Hey, Bill, you and I met backstage at Radio City Music Hall 10 years ago. Neither of us were Rockettes, uh, but you, <laughs> we were at the World Business Forum, and you were getting ready to give a speech on leadership, and I was getting ready to interview the late Jack Welch. That brings me to an important question because, you know, Jack Welch at the end of the 20th century, he was it when it came to leadership. You know, his books sold like crazy. He developed a whole generation of CEOs who went on to lead Boeing, Home Depot, 3M, etc. But there is a sense that the rules of the game have changed pretty dramatically since he left the stage. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah, I think that's so true. You know, uh, Alan, of course, I remember being backstage with you, Jack, and of course, his wife, Susie, um, before I went on. You know, Jack was an incredible force of nature and, you know, figured you had to be number one or two in any business and held people highly accountable. And if you didn't perform, you didn't last long. I think that is absolutely a leadership style that proved to be highly successful for him. I do think the rules of the game have changed so much. Uh, there's a bigger war for talent now than I believe there ever has been. And I believe you have to create cultures that have an enormous focus on purpose. And you have to create environments where people feel inspired to come to work. So the pendulum has really swung more towards a leader being absolutely in service to the employees and absolutely finding new ways to inspire them, new ways to innovate, new ways to bring out the best in them. And the accountability is actually in unleashing the entrepreneurial spirit itself versus managing things hard line. Um, so there's a soft touch that you need today that's uh, pretty unique. So talk a little bit more about how you do that and maybe use ServiceNow as an example. I mean, you're still pretty new there. You came in with some, some clear leadership goals. How do you inspire an organization like that? The number one thing that I came in with was a dream. And I, I believe that dreaming big is consistent with my authentic self. And I laid out a five-point plan for ServiceNow to focus first of all, on the purpose of the company. You gotta be true to your purpose. And ours is to make the world of work work better for people. And that was so genuine, so simple, yet so profound in many ways. I felt it could be stretched into the business model itself. I introduced a concept called the platform of the platforms. 
because I saw the workflow revolution coming full circle with ServiceNow as the protagonist in the story. Today, in the enterprise, people want consumer-grade experiences. It's mobile, it's web-based, it's conversational tools, and everything has to be gorgeous and easy to use, again, in service to people. And that's what ServiceNow does. It gives you a consumer-grade experience and enables people to work as teams across enterprises to get stuff done. So that was key, but I knew we had to make the move to the C-level. We had been working with the CIOs very well, but it was a world where we had to transform the employee experience and make sure that people at work really were inspired and had the tools necessary to win and also to change the customer service management paradigm. It wasn't enough just to engage customers, upsell them, cross-sell them, and market to them. You had to really care for them and make sure that every case, every customer was managed professionally and to satisfaction levels never before achieved. I'm here with my friend Joe Yukazoglu, CEO of Deloitte US, who also happens to be the sponsor of this podcast, and we thank you for that, Joe. Pleasure to be here, Alan. Joe, as you know, Deloitte and Fortune did a survey recently that found this economic downturn is different from probably every other recession in our lifetime in that it is accelerating innovation and accelerating digital transformation. I think something like 77% of the CEOs said digital transformation has been sped up by the downturn. How can that be? Alan, these are certainly not the circumstances that anyone would have wished for to serve as an accelerator for digitizing our society. But as a general rule, those companies that have made the investments in digitizing are having greater success weathering the current circumstances. What we're seeing is that clients are prioritizing investments in technology, software, cloud migration, and this goes well beyond automating the back office and taking out costs. I assume, though, that that means that the gap between the digital haves and the digital have-nots is going to get bigger. There's no doubt. I'm actually pretty optimistic around the potential for the real economy to experience a long period of tech-driven growth coming out of this. But there are definitely some big societal implications exacerbating the digital divide that we as business leaders are going to need to play a significant role in helping society navigate. Yeah, so important. Thank you for that, Joe. Great to be here, Alan. We've got two things going on at once, a global pandemic and, as we mentioned, this reckoning on systemic racism. How are you handling getting your folks back to work safely and your customers? Yeah, Ellen, it was amazing. When COVID first hit, we had a blue sky dream session all scheduled between myself and the management team. And we were going to decide on what we were going to look like when we grew up. And I got into the meeting and it was a daunting feeling when COVID was really hitting uh, the United States hard. And I said, look, let's um, put that plan on the shelf. If we don't take care of COVID, there won't be a blue sky. So in one week, we decided to bring emergency response applications to the market. And we were helping states like Washington State conquer the COVID crisis. And we were working with the health and human services and all other companies to really respond to the emergency. Do we know where our people are? If they are sick, are we properly quarantining them to bring them back to safety so they can be healthy and obviously contributors in the corporate pursuit of excellence? So that was step one. Now it's time to bring people back to work safely as an option. So I think about a third of the people will 
want that option. You have dual income families, elderly care, child care issues. They need an outlet. Another third will be road warriors and work from anywhere. And a lot of them will now work from home. The paradigm has completely shifted in the way work is going to be kind of rethought altogether. Bill, you think that paradigm shift is a permanent shift? I do. I do, Alan, because I think people have learned that we were doing a lot of silly things. Um, You know, for example, (laughs) one silly thing is let's bring everybody together at one location for a training session. Now, never mind the cost and the productivity drain, but just think of now with health and wellness such a focus, why would you do that? Why would you put people through that when on a digital platform you don't need to? You can train them virtually on these modern tools It's lower cost, it's healthier for the people, and frankly, the focus on the content is easier because they don't have the trappings of travel and the complications of hotels and all the other stuff. So I do think there's going to be a major step function change, also in very large meetings where you bring people together in conventions and trade shows and things like that. Now, as we pivot the company, we said, okay, return to workplace is real. What are the things we need to do? So number one, We need to find out if people are ready to come back to work. You have to have testing procedures in place when they do come back to work. You have to have the proper social distancing and office configuration and cleanliness at the highest standards. You have to have PPE inventory management in every location, department, floor, and building. And of course, you have to have a clean sheet of glass with analytics so we can see, hey, what's going on? And if there is a problem, the data should rule and decision makers should get involved and remediate that problem. I also believe not to have these apps is irresponsible and it will be a highly litigious environment for companies that don't protect their employees. Yeah. Hey, I want to change the subject a little bit on you if I can. You were talking about the changing nature of leadership. We've seen something that in my four decades of experience is pretty extraordinary in in the last few years and even more intensely in the last few months. The George Floyd killing, uh, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey provoked a remarkable outburst from CEOs that didn't happen even six years ago when Ferguson happened. A remarkable outburst from CEOs whose go-to position even 10 years ago, I can tell you as a journalist, was, are you kidding me? I'm not going to talk about that. I'm hiding under the desk. You know, it's a controversial social issue. It doesn't directly affect my bottom line. Leave me out of it. So why? What has changed? I think there's a few things. One, Alan, I think that there's now true recognition of the root cause of racism that has existed for 400 years. And I think you have to first acknowledge that there is a problem and you have to absolutely understand the pain and the depth of that problem before you can possibly hope to even listen and actually hear what's actually going on. So I think that acknowledgement is at a deeper root cause level than I have ever seen it before. The other thing is, you know, we have companies that need talent. And as I look at talent and the war for talent, you have to have all people participate in this modern economy to grow these companies, fill these jobs, and help companies achieve their true ambition. And diverse companies outperform companies that are not diverse. You know, I immediately wanted to speak with our black employees and really understand how they were feeling and what we weren't listening to and what we weren't hearing. And they were not interested in a moment. 
They were interested in a movement and to protect our employees. You know, as a leader, I had to be on the front line and getting in front of that and build a five point plan with our leadership team, uh, which we did. And that plan includes workforce training, pay equity, really giving employees a voice. We have to lobby for good. And of course, we have to recruit in a whole new way. And we have to advance the careers of black, Latinx, LGBTQ employees and all employees to fulfill our ambition to be the defining enterprise software company. And what's going to hold your feet to the fire on that? What's going to keep you from deciding two months from now there's some other priority? To be that defining enterprise software company of the 21st century, you have to hold the mirror up and you have to look in the mirror. So the first mirror is on you as the CEO. The second mirror is really on the leadership team. And is every leader using this as a moment of profound accountability to own it, to lead it, and to be the change? And then finally, as I said, you have to create allyship within our companies and allow for open, honest communications and really communicate group by group to make sure all constituents are being adequately heard. And they will tell you what you are not doing. And it is your job to listen. It is your job to change. And it is your job to push forward. So I believe that the transparency on an end-to-end basis now is a level I've never seen before. As I'm listening to you, I'm hearing a couple of things. One is I need a five-point plan, clearly. You've had two major five-point plans. They seem to be working well. And I'm also hearing from other people, other CEOs, other leaders who are part of my beat, which you know is race, is that they're struggling with some of the elements of this. They're struggling with the transparency. Their numbers maybe are not what they want. They're embarrassed by them. And they're struggling with the courage it takes to have these kinds of candid conversations and build a plan around them. What's your advice to your peers who are struggling right now? Well, I think it's normal to struggle, right? When you look at the facts, um, the facts tell you not enough has been done. So, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. So put the cards on the table and take a look at the facts. The facts just don't lie. They are what they are. And by looking at the facts honestly and openly, you will open up a new gateway to innovation and opportunity within your company because that's all people want. They want the truth. And then once you have the truth, you can get at the root causes and the countermeasures to make change. You know, for example, if we want to drastically improve the experience for our people within the company, you have to ask yourself, well, why aren't more black people in our company getting promoted? Like, why is that? And then you really start to get into the details that they're making it to certain levels, but they're not making it to other levels. Well, why is that? And you start to get into tough conversations. Like there's a difference between mentorship and sponsorship. Who's sponsoring these individuals? Who's really getting involved to make sure we take care of the talent we already have? I mean, that's my first job, take care of the talent we already have. And then the second job, you know, really is the recruiting procedures. You really have to rethink the recruiting procedures. And as we were talking earlier about the office and the changing environment, you know, there was once a time where you might be recruiting from a certain geography where you have a concentration of Latinx or potentially African-Americans in America. But the reality is your office is on the other side of the country. 
And are they going to make that move? Well, with the technologies that exist today, do we need them to? So we can start to think about new ways. Well, we can hire you. You can work on the now platform. There's so many things that we can do digitally that don't require reloads. So I think we're going to have to have more flexible hiring processes. We're going to have to search in new places for talent. We're going to have to expand the university environment, the pre-university environment. And then we're going to have to have true amplification of progress because the facts and the progress are what people want to talk about, not just the problem. You know, I do want to make one thing clear. In the sessions that people might feel uncomfortable getting into, they shouldn't because I had a listening session right after the George Floyd tragedy. And, you know, one of the women on our company told me that um, her family moved from Chicago to Miami. She was a seven-year-old girl at the time, and her family on the block that she moved into was the only black family on the block. And literally, people went to the town to protest her family moving onto that block. And it was such a devastation for their family. They ended up going through with the move, and obviously, the town couldn't rule against it, but it was just a tragic, emotional time for her. Now, don't you know, the man that was the loudest neighbor against their move also happened to be the husband of her school teacher. And can you just imagine being her in that classroom? We had another gentleman that told me a story when he was at one of our competitors' cafeteria, and he said he saw people from all over the world speaking many different languages, and he was the only African-American in the cafeteria in this very famous large company, and just think of how he felt. Another story that broke my heart is um, African-American gentleman in one of our offices where he didn't commonly come into the office, but this one day that he did, a security guard came up to him in the office and said, I want to see your employment badge. And he said, I couldn't get in the door if I didn't have an employment badge. Why are you asking me for my badge? And just think of those heartbreaking moments. So I don't think we should be afraid of those moments because it's those moments that tend to your heart and inspire your soul to drive change. Yeah, that's really powerful, Bill. Thank you. I, I, there's one thing I want to ask you before we let you go, because you've made several references to culture in this conversation. And culture is a powerful and enduring thing. And you came from a German company, 50 years old, roots in old tech, you know, a bunch of people left IBM to start it. And now you're in Silicon Valley, you know, 15 years old, not 50, new tech. Tell us about the cultural differences. Well, the, the main thing is that, you know, I was very fortunate with SAP because SAP was looking for a change agent. And thank you, SAP, for giving me the opportunity to lead and do it my way and accept me for who I was and hopefully you're happy with the contribution. When I came to uh, ServiceNow, this company was founded by Fred Luddy. And if anyone's ever met Fred Luddy, I mean, this is universal. Um, this is the salt of the earth human being that truly gets his high from making customers so happy with his technology and his platform. And that became a pervasive theme in this culture, a hungry and humble totally customer-driven culture, which is right up my alley. And frankly, the connection there to the board and to the purpose of the company was amplified also by John Donahoe, who, as you know, Alan is a great personal friend of mine and a great CEO for Nike. 
And between us was a guy named Frank Slootman, who also did a great job as CEO. So there's been a list of very successful people that have stuck to the plan, which is hungry, humble, purpose-driven, people-led, really firing on all cylinders to do the right thing. And at the stage I'm at in my career now, I felt that I could give so much to this company from my experience and literally my rebirth of energy and passion to create the defining enterprise software company of the 21st century that I said, this really is something that will be a great match. And, and here we are. Well, they are lucky to have you and, and we are lucky to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Leadership Next. Well, Alan and Ellen, I'm lucky to have you as friends and it was an honor to be on with you today. Thank you so much. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 